0: Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save.
3: With no fees or minimums and no overdraft fees, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Charles Barkley in a pickup game.
2: We'll take Barkley. Ha! First pick. Sorry, kids.
3: <laughs> yep, even easier than that. With no fees or minimums and no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? Okay, here's the plan. Pass me the ball every time. This is banking reimagined. What's in your wallet?
1: Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC.
3: Whether you're a skeptic or a believer, join me, Rob McConnell, as together we'll investigate the world of the paranormal and the science of parapsychology here on the Exxon Radio TV show on XZBN and the Exxon TV channel on Simul TV. Since 1990, the Exxon Radio TV show has been the place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. Together, we'll investigate UFOs, aliens, ghosts, Bigfoot, psychic phenomena, lake monsters, conspiracy theories, government cover ups, the truth embargo, alien abductions, ESP, haunted locations from around the world, and so much more. tvchannel.com or simultv.com and xzbn.net. Until next, we meet here in the ExZone from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Always remember, Exxon Nation, keep your eyes to the sky and your heart in the light.
0: Welcome to Know the Name, Know the Genius in You. Now, Albert Einstein once said that everybody's a genius. Why would one of the smartest people on the planet declare that everyone is a genius unless he knew that to be true? This program is about sharing with you how people find their genius and how finding what they were great at doing ended up benefiting others. I'm your host, Sharon Lynn Wyeth creator of Namology Science, and author of Know the Name book series. At the end of tonight's show, you'll hear clues that are revealed in names to assist you in recognizing your own innate talents. Now, our expert tonight is Rachel Kaplan. She's developed her genius in the area of healing emotional wounds. Rachel Kaplan has been relentlessly studying healing since her life was devastated by the traumatic suicide of someone she loved when she was only 14. Her personal pursuit studying healing modalities led her on an international mission to study the methodologies of the world, focusing on both the spiritual practices of Eastern religions and the cutting edge Western psychological approaches, as well as um, everything she could find in between from books and from studying with other people. She's a longtime yoga practitioner and teacher, as well as a seasoned psychotherapist in the San Francisco Bay Area. Now, after 25 years of studying various modalities and successfully working with students and clients, Rachel simplified the single most important emotional tenet for deep core psychological healing. Having guidance, learning this fundamental tenet for a high emotional quotient is as important as having guidance during potty training. Now, Rachel created her new podcast, The Healing Feeling Shit Show, to assist grown-ups so they can achieve happiness Technically called emotional resilience. Now, welcome to Know the Name, Know the Genius in You radio show, Rachel. Thank you so much. It's great to be here, Rachel. You often state that what you do is emotional potty training for grown-ups. What does that mean? Right.
4: Um, well, so when we were when we were young, when we were infants, uh, and we we learned to go to the bathroom, right? We learned that. That, um, you know, at first we started in diapers and then eventually we were taught so that any or most, I'd say, functioning adult knows that, you know, they will get a signal from their body. And at that moment, you know, if you have to poop, you basically understand that there's only one thing that you can do that will make you not have to poop. And so we don't think, oh, we should eat or we should drink or we should post something or buy something. Right. We know that that is the single action we can take to feel better. And emotional potty training is basically after these 25 years of relentlessly studying what heals people, I found that emotions are quite similar. They are intense sensations and signals from our bodies. And that when we get those signals, you know, despite how much all of us engage in all kinds of efforts to distract or consume those sensations away... That's that's similar to pooping, there's really only one way to feel better and to not feel that pain, and it's actually to feel the pain. <laughs> and and if we were to learn how to do that and get really skillful with that practice, which is totally possible, that the the ability to work with challenging or uh, painful emotions becomes no bigger deal than, you know, the next time you go to the bathroom.
0: You know, it's interesting to me, Rachel, because, so many people within their names, I can see that they'd rather just bury their emotions than have to feel them at all. So when you talk about really feeling your emotion, what about those people who don't know how to do that or have buried it for so long? They're clueless.
4: Yeah, exactly. And you know, the truth is, is that some people might be more innately or able to, to do that. Like some people, they're just so sensitive that you know, they, they they almost have no option to bury their emotions. But what I would say is we're living in a culture and at a time in society where we're really all taught that we can just consume or distract away our pain. And what I would say is that I don't think any of us were taught how to do it, which is why I am dedicating my life force and my free time. I mean, it's, you know, the most beautiful and consuming amount of work I've ever done um, to create the shit show, as you said. And, and, um, and it's such a, you know, beautiful experience for me because I'm taking the journey that I've been on, which started, as you said, in pain and trying to craft it in a way that wisdom and understanding of what actually can help people where it makes it accessible. It teaches people step-by-step. Why do you need this? Why are your standards of, of how you feel? How are they off? And then how do you start to cultivate the skill? And it's It's not that different than, you know, if you were to train a muscle or, um, you know, practice learning a language or something that you you do again and again and you notice how it goes. That's pretty much what I'm guiding people with. And the reason I'm so passionate about it is that, you know, if you look at the impact of all of us bearing our feelings, there are many things you can see. There's certainly overconsumption. There is also, you know, deaths almost, you know, constantly from either overdose or you know drug abuse or suicide and then there's all these totally heinous hate crimes and mass murders and so my sense is you know one way or the other the feelings will win just like you know if you were to eat food and never go to the bathroom you would get sick and probably die it's like we can't um, actually overcome these natural mechanisms and so instead I'm like why don't we get good at you know, learning them and then and then they do help us feel more and more balanced, more and more happy and resilient.
0: So your first season of your podcast just launched this past February right. on all platforms where podcasts are found. And you were saying that this season or this first year, you it's gonna include step-by-step how-to's on how to move your feelings and heal yourself and create emotional resilience. Okay. Now or what you would call the new happy. Yeah. Um, and I understand that you have over six hours of client interviews about healing work, live under unscripted therapy, um, or your hilarious poop stories that right. come out on this radio show. So would you talk to us about this radio show and, and give us like real examples, like what somebody would do and plus an example of a poop story?
4: Um <laughs> Sure. Well, what I can tell you is, I mean, first of all, the poop story, the, the poop metaphor, um, it's not only fun and a fun brand, but it really is the single best way to understand the the way we need to learn to relate to our emotions. Um, and so the the role of the poop story in each episode is for comedic relief because um, for better or worse, I'm someone who has always, You know, loved laughing at a good poop story. And some of these now I've heard, you know, hundreds of times and I still think they're hilarious. So um, part of what I'm trying to do with that is also just lighten the, the tone, like reduce the shame that we all feel. The truth is every single person has pain, emotional pain. You know, it's not possible to be a human and not have emotional pain. We we lose things, we lose relationships, we lose loved ones. And at some level, we know eventually we're going to lose our lives. And so, you know, to try to have your human life without human pain is just, it doesn't work. And so instead of feeling bad, I think that while there's a little bit of shame around pooping, we have actually more shame around the part of us that feels like poop. And so I'm really trying to hold this in a lighthearted way so that overall the the you know pervasive shame is dismantled. So that's that and um you know I think honestly the best thing for the poop stories would be you know these are things like and by the way I'm I'm desperately in need of poop stories for season 2. These are things like you know you accidentally pooped your pants or you know someone had to had an experience being exposed pooping in the desert, someone had an experience of traveling. There's a lot of travel stories as you can imagine. Um, you know, they poop their, their pants in one night and are able to tell it in just a magical, funny way. So, um, I'd love to get your poop stories for your listeners. Um, and it's a great use if you ever end up accidentally pooping in your pants or something, you know, something funny, um, and unfortunate happens, you know where to send it. Um, and I'm sure you'll, you'll ask me that later. Uh, but yeah, the first season it's 12 episodes and I spent a year creating it. It's all beautifully scored with, um, an album that the main sound engineer and musician who I work with um, created actually to process his father's death. So the music is very powerful and helpful as far as helping us create a connection to emotions. And um, it basically starts you off with why should you learn to have your pain? How do we get so wounded in the first place? Like episode two and three is how do we get wounded? And then how do we create a relationship with the wounded part of us? Um that, that actually heals it. Episode four gives um a memoir style account of my of the suicide of my first love, um, just to have the listeners understand what it's possible to overcome. Episodes five and six kind of do a breakdown generically. How do you learn to feel your sensations in your body? Like one of the things I call emotions are uh, clusters of intense sensation rolling in squads. So it's like that's what. You know, if you feel angry, you might feel heat. You might have a lot of surging of blood to your limbs or your forearms. You might feel tension in the jaw or tension in the fists, you know, the hands. It's like, you know, that we call that anger. We learn to identify that as anger, or some of us do. But really, it's a physical cascade of, of experience. And so episodes five and six really teach people, how do you start to become connected to that physical experience? And then episodes 7 through 10 are really fun. They each break down one of the core emotions. So anger, grief or sadness, fear, and then shame. And they help you get a ton of ideas and skills and approaches of how to actually move that feeling through you. So that's, that's the whole premise is emotions. If you take the letter E and you're someone who loves words and letters, right? I mean, you take the letter E off of the word emotion, what do you have left? You have motion. Exactly, it's like, in in the name tells you the purpose. They are supposed to move. And when we learn how to get out of the way, which means reducing shame, getting curious, letting go of the myth that we shouldn't have feelings or that men shouldn't have feelings. Of course, Rachel, have let's hold it
0: right there with men shouldn't have feelings to pick up after the break. Since we need to take a break, stay tuned to Know the Name, Know the Genius in You, which is being heard on xzbn.net an X Zone broadcast network and on the website knowthename.com. Now after the break we're going to find out how our emotions move through us. Stay tuned.
1: Now that you mention it, I remember now last night, I was awakened from a deep sleep. My great-grandmother was standing there. She said she'd come from the hereafter to tell me about Simultv.com. She even spelled it out for me. .com, sonny boy. S i m u l t v .com, sonny boy. Wow. Yeah.
5: Guys, you'll never guess what my psychic guru just told me. SIMULTV.com Exactly. Are you guys psychic, too? Of course.
1: We all know about SIMULTV.com. SIMULTV.com
0: Welcome back. I'm Sharon Lynn Wyeth, and you're listening to Know the Name, Know the Genius in You, which is being heard on XZBN.net. And knowthename.com. Our guest tonight is Rachel Kaplan, whose website is healingfeelingshitshow at gmail.com. Okay, Rachel, right before the break, I had to interrupt you for our break, but you were talking to us about the key emotions in in episodes seven through ten. Please continue.
4: Yeah. Um, and one thing is, the, uh, the website is the, what you just read is my uh, email, which is a great way to actually get me your poop story, if you remember. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> but my website is very similar. It's just healingfeelingshitshow.com. And just so you know, if you look for this podcast, or you learn how to have your feelings move through you like a good poop, you need to make the I in the word shit an asterisk because in the end, iTunes wins. And if they say, don't swear, um, I don't swear. So um, what I was saying was that, you know, that feelings move. If you take the E off of the word, you get motion. Emotion, you know, boils out to motion. And so a lot of the, the work is actually getting out of the way. And I was saying that, of course, men do feel... Um, There's a lot of pressure that they feel like they shouldn't. We were men were largely taught they don't have feelings or it's not strong to have emotions. um, But we know that's not true. So seven through 10, each break down a specific emotion and teach you ways to learn to become really skillful with it. And an example I can give you is around anger. So uh, in the therapeutic industry, you hear a lot of people talking about managing anger, right? Like that's, you hear me, anger management, it's a term. But what I think is that anger is very similar to the element of fire. You know, it's like when we when we get angry, we you, you hear it in the language. You know, we see red, smoke comes out of the ears, you get hot. And anger, similar to fire, is capable of destruction. In fact, I would even say that that's what anger or that's what fire does, right? It's like it destroys wood, right? It, it consumes, it devours. And so instead of people trying to either deny that they have anger, which you see all over the place, and then eventually become so full of that anger and rage that they explode, whether through, you know, just blowing up at someone or um, yelling on the highway, whatever it is, what I teach people how to do is what would it be like to take that explosive backlog, pile inside you, and one little bit at a time, so from like 10 to 15 minutes at a time, which is actually quite long in the world of anger work, you practice having a tantrum. So an easy way to do it would be you, you grab a towel or a blanket, go to your couch or your bed, make sure nothing breakable is within you know a few feet of you, and then you just go to town beating the, the, the bed or the, or the couch and muttering or swearing or saying no or saying, you know, screw you, whatever the thing is that you're trying so hard to not feel. What if you were to let yourself feel that, really let yourself connect to that anger, you know, with the intention that you're doing it so that you become a more balanced, safe citizen or a family member or a better mother or a more patient, you know, teacher, whatever it is. And you do that a few times a week and you start to establish a relationship with that emotion where when something gets you really mad, you know that you're going to honor it. You know that you're going to move it, um, but you start to train yourself that you're not going to do it at people and you start to you know, have these safe ways where you learn the power and the benefit of being in touch with an emotion that's as powerful as anger. And there's like a billion reasons we'd wanna be in touch with our anger once we have a healthy relationship with it. Connie Dombrowski
0: teaches us that underneath anger is because there is a hurt. And underneath the hurt is because there's a fear because we actually care so very much about something and that we're hurt by somebody else's actions or something hasn't gone the way we've expected it to right. and so we have a fear that we cannot fix it and it's because the hurt is so strong because we care so much that we end up getting angry and that's the underlying parts of anger do you agree or disagree with well, Connie Dabresky? Too.
4: I do agree that there are layers of emotion and I do agree that usually under anger is, is a, a hurt or a, a grief and I, I totally think that fear is also usually a layer deeper and that at the deepest level what you find is shame and a worthlessness and a sense of do I or do I not belong. So I think that that is true. But I think that in the, anger is interesting and part of why I talk about it is because even in the um, self-help world, the psychological world, It still has a bad rap. It's like we want to be able to feel our fear. We want to be able to feel our grief and cry or, you know, these these communities that are focusing on emotional intelligence. But we're still saying that anger has no place. And I think it's really misunderstood and that anger is also a way. So I think that yes, it is layered. And once we allow and honor and move the anger, there are often waves of grief that come up. And so, you know, and when I go into that in episode seven with anger, it will talk about how you then slow down, especially because it's tiring work to move anger, um, how you slow down and and tune into the part that might need to cry or that might be afraid or that might be a shame that here you are beating your bed with a towel, you know. Um, But what I would say is that anger also has its own value when it's when it's in it, when it's when it's not, um, hypercharged by a backlog of 20 or 30 years by, of not being allowed to feel it. So when, when we don't let ourselves feel angry, what you'll see is a lot of martyring, a lot of caretaking for the purpose of, you know, getting what you want and then resentments. Like there are all kinds of ways that anger will come out one way or the other. Right. Um, and so I think when we've done some of that backlog, we've made peace with, The fact that it's okay to be angry. In fact, sometimes anger is like a beautiful, wise, resourced response. Like, you know, when we get to that place, anger really shows us our boundaries and it depends on us valuing ourselves and knowing our worth to be angry. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm ever encouraging that I want someone to be caustic or unkind or cruel or explosive. It's quite the opposite. It's like once you create a relationship with that, with that emotion, that energy in your system that you just can't get rid of no matter how much you think it's scary. It's like part of the package, right? Once you begin, you get responsible for that emotion, then you can be really careful with it. Now you were going to say anger is also a way to what? Um, well, anger is a way, like if you get to a healthy place, that anger is a way to value yourself. It's a way to know when something is, um, pushing in on your, va- on, on your, um, You know, what what your values are, what you're okay with, what your personal space is, what you deserve, what you're allowed to have. It's like if we aren't so consumed with a backlog of anger where someone pulls in front of us on the highway and we're swearing, then if you get that heat of anger, you're going to know something happened that really isn't okay for you. It's a signal. Just like to, to switch emotions for a moment, fear. So fear, you know, is incredibly adaptive. Like when we when we lived primitively or we lived, you know, where the wild animals were, you needed to have a system in your body. And we still do. Like they're not even if we're not living with lions and tigers and bears, we still need to know when we're in danger. And so when someone has a baseline or a homeostatic point where they more or less feel safe in the world, where so they don't have a, a lifelong terror of not being safe that they haven't ever let themselves feel from childhood on and that's the kind of thing that will create panic attacks and just like a core sense of insecurity or anxiety and I would say that stress anxiety and insecurity all of those kind of societally accepted descriptions of of stress or fear, they really are actually under the camp of fear. And I think there's incredible value to simplifying these emotions in our language to their most essential form. And the reason for that, and I will come back to fear in one second, is that just like when we're babies, you know, we don't have all these complex thoughts. We don't have these minds. And so, you know, you a baby's upset, it cries, and then the need is resolved and it feels better. And a lot of the way we became wounded is, is in that very young nervous system of, of us before we really had all this capacity to think. And so to get the system back into a place where it's moving and functioning in a way that keeps us balanced, what we really need to do is feel the feeling, not think and wax poetic about the feeling. And so I think saying to you, or anyone saying to someone else when they're like, how are you? If someone were to say, you know, I'm really scared right now. Money's really tight. And I've been really scared. You know, you can feel the vulnerability in that there. If there's a way it's so close to the actual experience. And instead, what you hear is we talk about stress, we talk about and you know, I'm anxious, I'm busy, I'm stressed. So at any rate, um, just to come back to the last piece about fear is that you know, in a system that has done some of this backlog work. And I like that backlog includes a word that references poop. Like, you know, we talk about logs. It's like we get pretty constipated when we try to not feel our feelings, as you were referencing early on. Everybody buries it, right? So if you have this, um, you know, baseline of terror that you've really never learned how to support or how to release, you're going to feel unsafe all the time. And so that system in our body that helps us survive in danger is no longer operating in a useful way. It's like every every stick we see is a snake, right? And so when there's actually a snake, we may or may not know it's any different than all those other moments that something felt like a crisis or felt, you know, um, life-threatening. And so we want to get our system to a place where we've dealt with some of that fear and we feel basically safe in the world. And then when that happens, then that's that's that flare-up of what fear feels like will actually be a signal that we really want to, heed. And that's how this work leads to the great things I'm saying it leads to. And I haven't even told you how great it gets. I mean, emotional resilience. The reason I say it's so great is that, you know, happy is fabulous. We all want to be happy, but you know, life, like I said, it, it, it surprises us. There are losses. There are always challenges. And so what, what is deeper than happiness, though it has a lot of happy involved is knowing that no matter what life throws at us, we can handle our feelings. We can support ourselves through whatever comes. And so we get really brave and really self-trusting. And that is the resilience I talk about, emotional resilience, which I think is better than happy, because it enables you to be who you are. And to- I
0: think that's a very valid point, and we need to take another break. Stay sure. tuned to Know the Name, Know the Genius in You, which is being heard on XZBN.net and XZone Broadcast Network Station, and on the website, knowthename.com. Now, this show is dedicated to helping other people enhance their own personal EQ or emotional quotient, and after the break, we're going to find out more about some of the different ways that Rachel has assisted people. Stay tuned.
1: Simul TV. Sound too good to be true? Well, it's not. You can have Simul TV today. Sign up at SimulTV.com. Do it today.
0: Welcome back. I'm Sharon Lynn Wyeth, and you're listening to Know the Name, Know the Genius in You. Our guest tonight is Rachel Kaplan, who is a therapist and specializes in raising one's emotional EQ. She can be reached via her website, healingfeelingshitshow.com. Again, that's healingfeelingshitshow.com. Now, Rachel, you pursued Eastern religions and spirituality living in both Nepal and India. So before we get in there, since I've been to both Nepal and all over India, I just want to know where you've been in those countries before I start asking questions.
4: Um, well, I, mo- I mainly lived in Nepal, so I was in Kathmandu probably about seven or eight months, and then I um, lived in a very rural village where they you know, didn't speak English, so it was three hours to the nearest phone, and they had seen two white people previous to us coming and living there for a month, but um, mainly in Kathmandu. And then India, um, it was more of extensive travel than living, but I've been... Let's see, Bombay, Igatpuri, Delhi, Varanasi. not so much the south, actually a little bit, um, but a little bit all over India. It's so big.
0: Uh, Yeah, it is. That's why I was saying most of what you were naming was in the north, and I think the north and the south are so different one from another. Where you uh, know? All over India, um, staying at different ashrams. Um, In Kathmandu, I thought it was very interesting how – um, they got when they wanted to protest something that the government was doing. What they would do is they would get a whole bunch of cars together and they would just go park in an intersection and cause traffic to jam up everywhere.
2: Right. And then they'd
0: hold up big signs so everybody would say what the problem is and they'd see all the signs. I thought it was a really ingenuous way of protesting something in a nonviolent way. Yeah, anyway. and they call
4: those buns. Buns. <laughs> yeah. I actually was there the year that the um, royal family was massacred, so it was Ooh. kind of an intense moment to be there. I had just left, but um, quite the year. Yeah, it sounds like it. So, what did you learn
0: from being in India and Nepal, other than how to communicate when you don't speak the language? Right. Well, I actually
4: <laughs> did <do> speak Nepali. <laughs> oh, fabulous! Yeah, um, I was a it was a study abroad program through my university, and so it started with two hundred hours of learning Nepali. Um, I'll say that's not so practical now. I like to joke about how practical it is, because but I, I can order in a restaurant and talk to the people in the stores. You know, what I was pursuing there is, um, because I I was devastated so young, you know, in high school I was really, I think, had interests and needs, a desperate need to understand how to make myself feel better that was, you know, beyond what most of my peers were interested in. And so I got kind of thrown into... Um, And and as I started to heal, I thought I was further along than I was, of course, Um, but as my senior year of high school, I started to have some of my early emotional healing experiences from the suicide of my first love, and um, it really sparked this spiritual awakening in me, and so I was over there studying or pursuing, like, what is their version of healing? Now, what I learned is that they have a very different concept about healing, and in fact, All of the centers there that were teaching healing in any form that was recognizable to me were really pitching it to tourists for money, right? And so it was this fascinating also cultural wake-up call. And not to say they don't have healers and they don't have profound spiritual practices and practitioners. They really do. But it was very different than the model I had, you know, I I went there seeking. But what I did do, and this was fantastic, and it was actually the bulk of my major, because I made up a major Um, which was really cool. I was at a huge university, but was able to tailor this major around this program. And then when I got there, they were like, what do you want to study? So I did study yoga, like the physical asana practice and meditation and um, hands on healing practices. And what it did, I'd say that, I mean, it was profoundly useful and um, a lot of learning to feel your feelings is similar to learning to feel your body in, like, a a mindfulness practice. You know, mindfulness is all the rage these days. Really what that's about is learning how to attend to what's happening inside of us as well as outside of us, our our sense doors. Um, So I draw on that in a very profound way, and and the physical practice of yoga and the way that that translated into me becoming a teacher was also... um, in a lineage that was really focused on using the physical practice for emotional healing. So for me, it's all woven together in this pursuit of of healing. But I would say also personally that year was really about um, a deeper wake-up call. I actually would say that, you know, I went in thinking I was almost enlightened and my friends all were convinced maybe I was going to die. They were, my college friends kind of thought I was like the little guru. And I came back being like, God, I'm a mess. I started meditating, realizing there were multiple voices in my head talking to each other. And um, and I started actually realizing how much I had been trying to help people based on this pain of not being able to save my dead boyfriend. And so it's really a cool pivot in my journey of being a healer because I stopped doing that for a few years. like really didn't mess with anyone's healing or awakening and, and really brought the, um, the work inside. And then as I started coming back into that role as a yoga teacher and you know I would facilitate in my early days of teaching yoga, workshops for people who had been um, sexually abused and, you know, I was as I moved back toward my professional pursuit of being a psychotherapist, I had really come to a place where I was no longer and I'm no longer doing it now because I feel bad inside and I'm not trying to compensate and that really changes things.
0: (laughs) So, well, you've, you know, been exposed to so many different modalities. What is one of the modalities that you found to be incredibly effective?
4: Yeah, Well, it's interesting because it's the single most effective one, and it's the one that I talk about most cryptically because the person who um, I learned and healed and mentored with in this way is a very private person. He's someone actually who lives in the um, American Southwest. He lives right on the border of New Mexico and Arizona. When I first um, went out to his land, it was mainly the work was done through the phone. Um, He lived in a mud hut, you know, and, and over the many years that I would work with him, um, He had built some of the structures on his land, but um, he's really, he's, he's someone who's initiated into more of the um, native tradition of our, of our country. Um, So an Apache lineage. And it was really the heart of what I did with him that helped me understand the mechanics of the emotional system. And, and, and that was the work that really truly, you know, set me free for myself and, and the work that, you know, I had already been a professional psychotherapist for years at that point. I've been doing that work for 13 years. But when I started integrating that into my work with my clients, that's really what teaches people, helps people to become accountable, helps people to actually overcome. You know, one word that we use kind of frequently is imposter syndrome, right? This sense of, you know, do we deserve what we have or are we as good as people think, right? And um, what I would say is that the only way we can really heal the voices that would be underpinning you know, imposter syndrome, is by becoming really amazing caregivers of these very young parts of us that we learned early in our life in a, in a nonverbal way we had to suppress in order to get the love from our parents. And, you know, anyone who studied psychology or attachment therapy or the science behind it, you know, there are studies where little monkeys choose to cuddle with terry cloth covered wire figures instead of eat. That is how important our need for a loving connection with our parent is. So if we notice that every time we cry our face off, our mom or dad move away from us, we're going to be instinctually wired for survival to not cry. And so what happens is very early in our life, we start smashing all these parts of us down. And we think that these are the parts that make us unlovable. And these parts kind of calcify as we try to hide them and go into middle school and high school and we try to hide them from our coworkers and our girlfriends and whatever it is, you know. Um, And these are the parts that make up imposter syndrome. And if someone wants to get to a place where they feel worthy of their lives or their successes or the love their dog gives them, it requires knowing how to access these very deeply buried parts and how to move the pain out of those parts. And that really brings me to the emotional potty training because that is how you do it. And so I learned that this through my work with this healer. and I've now kind of translated this for the world because this guy he may share a book at some point, but he's he's very much I mean he he lives in the wild. he lives primitively, he goes offline for months at a time without tools, even you know he's living in a different way. And so I'm very much in the world. I've got a cell phone I'm addicted to looking at just like you do. <laughs> and I know what it's like to be you know so influenced by our culture and the distractions that live here. And so I translated, you know, what I understood of this work as well as the 23, 24 years leading up to it um, into the healing, feeling shit. So it really is the best I have to offer and the most useful skills I know.
0: So you have an emotional EQ test on your website. The one that's called your core com, which allows someone to find out what emotion dominates their core wound. That's right. So, In just one minute or less, give us the core of why you decided to create this test, and then we'll talk more about it after the break.
4: Absolutely. So someone can go on there, and within five minutes, you just answer numerically how much you relate to these different statements, and it will email me, and I can look at it, and I look at everybody's at this point, and I can see, okay, you need to start with working with anger, and that will be your doorway in. And so it gives me a sense of not so much what's the deepest core, because as I said before, the core is... You know, the core of the core of the wound is similar, but kind of where you're going to have the best access point. So it's a way to get streamlined into the action steps of my approach. And then you can use the the podcast to flesh it out to really understand what you're what you're doing. OK, so if you're interested, everyone, that's
0: your core dot com. So would I be correct in saying that the core is going to be anger, grief, sadness, fear or shame?
4: Yes, the um, this grief and sadness will be the same, but it is exactly those. And um, I will send you a little module that has a video of me and it has the episode from the podcast that connects to that and a list of things that you can try. And so you'll get that and you can just check it out and see if it resonates. All right. So we need to take our last break.
0: Stay tuned to Know the Name, Know the Genius in You on xzbn.net and knowthename.com. Now, after the break, we'll find out what Rachel has in her name that has assisted her that you just might have in your name as well. And as well as we'll find out how to best deal with change. Stay tuned.
5: Christopher Fulton is a survivor of the National Security State. All he wanted to do was preserve history when he acquired a Cartier watch from the estate of President Kennedy's personal secretary. But that simple act set off a terrible chain reaction. He was pursued by the U.S. Justice Department and the FBI, thrust into the middle of the U.S. government's Assassination Records Review Board, even monitored and pursued by the Russian government. All because that Cartier watch was the missing link of evidence, a timepiece worn by JFK that fateful day in Dallas, a link resulting in Christopher being incarcerated and attacked for nine years because he opened a hidden chapter in history. The intriguing journey outlined fully in Christopher Fulton's memoir, The Inheritance, is available now through Trinday.com or amazon.com. The Inheritance, Poisoned Fruit of JFK's Assassination by Christopher and Michelle Fulton is a must-read, an incredible tale of how easily our own government can overrule justice. The Inheritance, Poisoned Fruit of JFK's Assassination.
0: Welcome back. I'm Sharon Lynn Wyeth, and you're listening to Know the Name, Know the Genius in You. Our guest tonight is Rachel Kaplan, whose website is healingfeelingshitshow.com. She's taken her skills to a level where she's able to share her secrets with others to enable them to learn how to heal their emotional challenges and raise their EQ. So, Rachel, How do you recommend that people deal with changes that occur in their life? I mean, what's something like a hands-on or immediately they could do step one and step two and that would get them going to feel better?
4: Well, it's a great question because what happens when we start becoming more connected to our emotion is we start to notice where our life fits and does not fit. And so it's not uncommon that as people become stronger and more emotionally potty trained that they start to outgrow certain relationships or jobs or patterns that were established when they were, you know, less actually themselves. And so one of the best tips I can give is that you don't want to try to figure the whole journey out in advance. You know, a lot of times like and for me this was actually part of my journey was I ended up leaving a marriage at the crux of this and this was um, this work I did. And, you know, there were times years prior to leaving where I would think about what if the marriage doesn't last and I would feel flooded with shame. And, you know, that, that had a certain impact. It, it kept me in longer. It kept me trying longer, but I would imagine all the things that were going to go wrong when that happened. Well, by the time I actually realized I actually needed to leave my marriage, I wasn't the same woman. I was really strong. And I, um, you know, didn't have the problems I imagined having months and out. And so I say, if you're going through through changes, you really want to look at that day, that month, that week, that year at max, you know, and really look for what is the current challenge you're facing and how do you support the fear inside you? Whenever we're future tripping about a change, what what is a safe bet is that you're afraid. And so you want to do the work with fear of how do you move fear? And that might be something like you turn on loud strange music and you... You dance and you kind of twitch and you shake. That's what animals do when they're afraid. They shake. So it might be that. Or it might be that you wrap yourself up in a bunch of blankets and you feel how helpless and scared you are and you try to cry because that's how you feel. So you deal with the feelings, but you don't believe your thoughts and you take it one step at a time. So how do you
0: recommend that people lessen or reduce emotional pain that is long lasting or very old?
4: Well, I mean, it's, it's, I've, I've spoke to it a little bit. It's basically like, you know, your job is to start turning at the most simple essence. It's to turn toward yourself and your discomfort, the sensations that feel uncomfortable or painful instead of away. And as you, instead of trying to get away from them. So when you notice like, oh gosh, I feel a little nervous instead of getting a drink, you might be like, okay, let me sit with this for a second. Let me place my hand on my chest. Let me get curious, where is the most intense cluster of this feeling? Let me breathe into it. Let me give myself permission to feel afraid. And then once you start establishing that curiosity and that permission to feel as you feel, then you can start creating a relationship with the parts of you that feel like that have been holding the pain for so long. You know, Whatever you think would have made your, your friends leave you or your parents leave you or your partner leave you, you can start to incorporate that part of you into your life you know, figuring out who does it like, what does it need to eat, what activities make it feel good versus feel bad. So you start shaping your life around the part of you that you've been hiding from. And then through that practice, there's a saying in Gestalt therapy that is contact is curative. And you see this with children. Children want attention desperately, even dogs. It's like, you know, they just want to be seen and, you know, attended to. And so when we start paying attention to the parts of us that we have, formerly assumed made us wrong bad or unlovable when we put them front and center and make them vips then they start feeling stronger and they start to integrate into our adult selves and our resource selves and they start to be able to take in that we're no longer six we're no longer living in a house with a really scary dad we we're safe now we have our own um, resources to take care of ourselves, and and then and then you do the emotional potty training work. Then you learn how do you actually move out all the feelings that that part of you has been carrying, and that's how you heal. <laughs> <laughs> well, you make it sound easy. So- it's really not easy, but it's way easier than what everyone's trying to do by trying to avoid that. Everyone, come on, we've already, we already figured it out. Like, no matter how many sweaters, how many drinks, how many you know likes on Facebook that feeling returns. And so there's a much deeper, more sustainable way. And it, it does take some practice, but it's totally doable. Just like pooping in the toilet, flushing, washing up afterwards is doable.
0: So so we've talked about how you are very good at assisting people to get rid of that pain and whatever. But have you noticed what the basic causes that cause the emotional pain and why it gets buried in our body in the first place yeah. instead of it just rolling off our shoulders exactly. like you know, water off a duck's back?
4: Yeah. The reason is, is what I was saying. Um, I mean, there's a few pieces, the way I'll speak to it, which is I kind of, I try to speak to what I've earned myself. Um, I will say, you know, that, and I think I, I have earned my own perception of our society, but I don't live outside of it. And so I'm careful to not be too critical because I'm so much a part of it, but we live in a world that is not balanced. We don't, you know, the relationships are like, for instance, we're all pretty, um, at this point, there's an immediacy to what we want and what we feel like we deserve. You know, Amazon Prime is an example. You know, and I use it, right? It's like, you want something, you get it the next day or that day. And so, and there's a way that, you know, most people in our society, um, there's a way that we we haven't been forced to learn how to contribute to our well-being the way we might have at an earlier time where we were living more in touch with the earth or the elements. It's like, we turn on a light switch. We don't necessarily realize where that's coming from. We go to the grocery store, we have no idea of what it took to grow the food or to hunt the animal or grow the animal, you know, raise the animal. And so there's, there's some piece that I think we're just living at a time where there's such a profound imbalance happening. But beyond that, and more deeply than that, and I think, you know, something that's been in our systems in a timeless way throughout whatever society you're looking at is that We are wired because we're so completely dependent as infants, we are biologically wired to need secure attachment. And we're raised by humans. We're raised by flawed people who had parents who were even less emotionally liberated than our parents were, right? And um, so there are all these subtle and not so subtle ways that we are taught that if we do certain things or express certain things that we won't get love. We won't get that secure attachment that we need so deeply. And so that is how I think we start to uh, contort around whatever and whoever we thought we had to be in order to keep those connections safe. And one thing, it's probably my favorite, the last thing I'll say about this is one of my favorite theories in the psychological training I've received is, you know, that if you think about a child who is dependent on the parents, even if there's horrific neglect, Even if there is abuse, physical or emotional abuse, that child is so dependent on those caregivers to survive that they basically have two choices of how to perceive what's happening to them. One choice is they can realize they're innocent and helpless in an unsafe, unfair world. The other option is that they can, suddenly there's an echo. I don't know if you hear that. Yeah, a little bit. Um, Go ahead. The other option is that they could, you know, think that that they live in a fair world and that it's actually their fault. And if they're just good enough or they do whatever they need to do better, that it won't happen. And the most adaptive thing for a vulnerable child to assume is true is actually that it's their fault because it's so unbearable to think that there's no justice, there's no safety and the person that's feeding you and keeping you alive is also causing you pain. And so however we were shaped by our parents, it's also really really adaptive and normal and of course we thought it was our fault that we were too emotional or we were too needy or we were too loud or we were too sexual or we were you know dumb whatever the thing we thought made us you know wrong or bad was we think it's our fault and so this work is really about reclaiming that it wasn't our fault <laughs> that was just what seemed true at a, and now at a bone deep level feels true And to earn our way to a place where we know it's not true, we have to put in some work and it's totally doable. And the the healing feeling shit show will guide you through it one step at a way, or one step at a time. Well, I would like
0: to know more about, in very brief, um, less than a minute really in an answer, is when you said that you felt like our grandparents were less emotionally liberated. I think every generation it's up to the individual whether they're emotionally liberated or not. And when life was simpler, it might have been actually easier to be emotionally liberated.
4: I agree. I think if you go back to a time where people were much more, (coughs) where they learned how to contribute to their survival more, whether it was making their clothes or, you know, growing their food, that there was just a certain degree of well-being that was demanded upon people. And so they might not have been relating to the emotions like we do. Um, but there was probably more of a baseline of balance than there is now. But I do think, you know, you know, especially around emotional conditioning, um, that, that our parents' generation, the parents, their parents' generation, that there wasn't really a, a whole lot of understanding of how to relate to emotions. Um, and that I do think that this current generation of kids, you know, you see just so much more freedom in how they're expressing their genders, how they're, you know, like boys and young men really rejecting some of these. um, Well, some of
0: that could be that they're relating to ideas differently. And yet emotions, I think, since we've always been human, have always, you know, people have always related to emotions. And I want to thank you, Rachel, for taking your time to join us. Uh,
4: Definitely been a pleasure having you on the show. It's been great. I'm really honored to be here. And I'm so curious about what you do. Is, does that still happen or no? Yeah, it still happens at
0: knowthename.com. So be prepared, be surprised and pleased when you, if you get to experience Rachel Kaplan's work on her website again. Now, Rachel's name excels at having a strong sense of self. This appears in the letter combination EL. If you have an EL in your name, then you too have a strong sense of self. Do you know where your genius lies? I'm Sharon Lynn Wyatt, host of the radio show, Know the Name, Know the Genius in You, which can be heard every weekday at various hours right here on XCBN.net Radio and Zone Broadcast Network and on KnowTheName.com. And if you wish to learn how to read a person's name or to know more about your own name and how your name reveals your purpose, talents, and challenges, visit the website, KnowTheName.com and give yourself the gift of a session. It's easier to live to your best and highest when you know what your name means.
2: This is Sharon and Wyatt. Finding.
3: If you are looking for a safe zero-calorie natural option to the harmful artificial sweeteners on the market today, Just Like Sugar is what you're looking for.